Welcome to Let's Clear the Air, a podcast sponsored by the Allergy, Asthma, and Sinus Center, dedicated to educating listeners about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for tuning in to Let's Clear the Air. I'm with Dr. Potter today in Greenville. Um, We were talking a little bit about different things. I know it's getting a little warmer. It's still February, but we're going to talk a little bit about food allergy today. Um, You've heard from Dr. Potter. We heard the get to know him, how he even got his start into allergy. Um, But we're going to dive in a little bit deeper about some topics. So today we're going to cover food allergy. Dr. Potter, I know you are the expert. You can tell us a little bit about food allergies so what are the most common food allergens so depending on you know age groups sometimes that can vary but the most common would be milk egg wheat peanuts uh, soy especially in younger kids and then seafood as people get older so those are the most common things we see but you can actually be allergic to a wide variety of foods and over time some people have become sensitized to things like mushrooms Um, We'll have other people complain of, you know, mouth itching sometimes with fresh fruits or vegetables they've eaten all their lives. So it really just depends. But I wouldn't say um, as much as I think about it, you can't be allergic to um, every food. But there are sometimes things that individual patients are allergic to that are actually uh, uncommon. Some patients do fine with uh, coconut but can't eat other nuts and interestingly coconut is a seed so we use that as an alternative in some of our nut allergic patients but then rarely i have patients that are coconut allergic but can tolerate other nuts so you have to be really careful when talking to patients and then be really focused on giving them good guidance so how do you diagnose a food allergy patient what are some of the things that you look for I think the first thing is just sitting down with them and taking a really good history. What is it that you ate? What kind of symptoms do you have? And can that range from mouth itching every time you eat it? Or do you have nausea? Maybe you feel like you're going to vomit. Do you get coughing, wheezing, chest tightness? Do you get a rash with it? Does that happen every time you eat the food? Does that happen just sometimes? Um, So those are things that we have to sort out. And then if it seems like there's a really consistent relationship between a food and particular adverse reactions that patients are having, next comes the big debate that patients ask me, which is better, blood testing or allergy testing or skin testing? And I tell them, really, it kind of depends on what you're looking for And I think, you know, in the setting of, you know, the average clinic day, skin testing with a good history tells us everything that we need to know. Sometimes we look at blood testing, and we can talk a little bit more about this if you want, how we use blood testing. But sometimes that helps us decide maybe there's other things that are causing the patient's symptoms, and we can do a little blood testing to help us decide maybe we should think about challenging that patient in the clinic or looking a little deeper into other potential causes. What does a food challenge look like? So food challenges are something that we do almost every day in the clinic, and I'll do those from toddlers to adults. And really what we're looking at is trying to determine in our general practice, is it safe to introduce that food or to clarify the relationship or the reaction that a parent, a patient is telling us? Um, In my typical clinic, let's say I do a egg challenge on a child, then I'm going to have a skin test, probably to scrambled egg, 
And if that doesn't have a reaction, then we're going to actually give them three separate feedings in the clinic. So it's a long visit, but the ultimate goal is to get a full ingestion of egg in to know that when we send them home, it's safe for them to ingest and reincorporate into their diet. But that's all observed. And again, we have to make sure that we think it's safe to do that here in the clinic. Sometimes there's people that have reported reactions to things like shrimp. They were on a cruise 20 years ago, had shrimp, broke out in hives and felt nauseous, and so they've been told they were allergic and since avoided. They may come into our clinic, have a negative skin test, a negative blood test, so then we'll have them bring shrimp in and we'll do a skin test, and if that's negative, we'll actually feed them shrimp and then that way we can clear them of that allergy so those are some common scenarios that we have so you mentioned having a good history um is that typically just a patient giving us history about what happened like they were like you said on a cruise ship they had some shrimp they had a little bit of a reaction to it is that typically a good story or how do you defer a good story versus what you need to know for a office visit so i think that's a good start many times what we're looking for is you know is there a history of similar reactions sometimes people will tell us well i eat shrimp all my life and then that happened and so you kind of question maybe there were other factors involved Um, Let's say, though, it's a nine-month-old child who got their first ingestion of scrambled egg at home and broke out in a facial rash and maybe had an episode of vomiting. We'll want to ask mom, well, was that the first time that they had it? Or is that child, were they formula-fed or breastfed? Because sometimes that can lead into a predisposition. Maybe they have broken skin, like atopic dermatitis. But even more important than that is... How soon did that reaction happen? And, you know, what did you have to do to treat it? So especially in those infants, it maybe it was a facial rash, they were fussy, they vomited once, and then everything cleared up and they were fine. I called my pediatrician and they said, just give them a dose of Benadryl and watch them. Well, sometimes I'll be told, and we didn't know if that was what it was, so we gave it to them again, and that happened. And I said, well, hopefully you're not doing that anymore. So timing of the reaction, the amount ingested, what it took to treat that reaction was it benadryl at home or something like that or was it you know did it require an er visit or maybe an, even a 911 call in some cases so that's where we'll try to really be as detail oriented as we can it's a little bit harder if people tell us well i don't know we were out at a restaurant and we had you know this and this and then while we were eating you know we had the reaction so sometimes we have to go through the whole menu ingredients and that can be a little more tedious I guess it's different, too, for each patient when you're thinking about a baby that could be having a milk intolerance versus an allergy. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in intolerances versus a true allergy? That's a a wide topic, but to start with milk, we can certainly say, you know, there's some babies who have what we call milk protein intolerance or milk protein enterocolitis, and those are babies that typically look very, very well, but within... Uh, A few weeks to a couple of months of life will develop blood-tinged or blood-flexed stools um, with as they're maybe taking a cow milk-based formula. If we do allergy testing on them, be a skin or blood allergy, that's usually negative, and those children will tolerate reintroduction somewhere between 9 and 12 months of age. 
in a child that I see early on who's got milk protein allergies, some of those kids may have atopic dermatitis or a bad eczematous rash all over, maybe vomiting, may have mucoid type stools, may not be gaining weight very well, and just are generally kind of ill appearing. Um, and we need to transition them over to a specialty formula uh, to try to remove all milk from their diet. So that's the two different presentations. I'll also see intolerances such as lactose intolerance in older children. That's a sugar intolerance. And people who ingest that typically with dairy products will have bloating and abdominal pain and um, gassiness and maybe looser uh, diarrheal type stools after ingestions um, and it just by removing lactose they do well those people oftentimes tolerate you know yogurts or, da- or types of cheeses where it's a little more processed and of course lactose free dairy Interestingly, we get a lot of people in our clinics these days who complain of abdominal pain and bloating with lots of foods, and our GI colleagues are starting to help us out because they're actually looking for other disaccharidase deficiencies. So sucrose, maltose, other dietary sugars can cause symptoms similar to lactose, and it's much more common probably than we knew. So that's certainly a big help for people if they can come to us, know it's not food allergy, and then go to GI and kind of get a little more guidance. Um, Other food intolerances can sometimes just involve uh, chemical properties of foods, be it caffeine, um, other vasoactive amines like tyramine, which can cause headaches, um, and sometimes even histamine in foods where people can have nasal congestion, runny noses, maybe even some uh, flushing and other things. And those can be with fermented meats, certain beverages, Um, citrus fruits, those types of things. So um, there's a wide variety of food intolerances. And a lot of times we just have to give patients uh, some expert reassurance that it's not a food allergy. So what would you do for a patient that is truly allergic? Would they just avoid it all in all? Or is there extra treatment plans that they can take on? Most accepted treatment for food allergy clearly is avoidance, but that can be problematic for patients and and families. So in cases where it's appropriate, we can look at different forms of um, either challenges or alternative ingestion. So commonly in my clinic, especially in younger children, who may have egg or milk allergy, one of the things that we work to try to find out is are they able to tolerate extensively cooked versions of egg or milk? And there's some data that will guide us, some skin test reactivity sizes, and we'll bring those children in if we feel like it's appropriate and do a challenge to baked egg or extensively cooked milk. Research shows that if we can open up the diet even to that, and baked egg would be things like cakes, cookies, things where egg is extensively processed. Milk would be have similar guidance. But if we can do that, then we give the, the family a lot of dietary freedom. Uh, there's also some products out there looking at oral immunotherapy um, for peanut. That's uh, inv- a lot more uh, involved and 
Uh, but those are, you know, products that our patients do ask us about. And in some settings, oral immunotherapy is appropriate for those patients. Um, and we hope that other things will be coming down the road. There's hints that we may have treatments in the future that may be very, very effective for patients with food allergy. Unfortunately, though, the mainstay is avoidance. Well, it sounds like technology on down the road, that would be something very innovative. Um, we've talked a lot about some milk allergens and egg allergens. What about peanut? Um, well, what kind of nuts do you test for in the office? I know there's lots of nuts. Well, yeah, that's a big point of education. Some people aren't sure, um, you know, if I'm peanut allergic, can I eat tree nuts? If I'm tree nut allergic, can I eat peanuts? And what exactly is a nut? And then I think one other thing to promote is that sesame has been recently recognized as a declared allergen. Um, and that is something that before uh, the turn of this new year was kind of a hidden allergen that we would have to be aware of. But peanut allergy it can be very isolated and people can be um, just allergic solely to peanuts. There are some patients who are allergic to all legumes, so peanuts, soy, peas, beans, and in that legume family. And then sometimes, and especially we do see this fairly frequently in our younger patients, um, children have become sensitized to multiple things, peanuts and tree nuts, in particular cashew, which is a very prominent tree nut allergen. But tree nuts would be defined as things like cashew, pistachio, almond, hazelnut, pecan, walnut, pine nuts, Brazil nuts, macadamia nuts. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm trying to think if I'm leaving anything out. That would probably be the big ones that most people are familiar with. I said earlier that coconut was um, a seed. And so that gets people really um, a little confused. And we try to give as much guidance as we can and differentiate nuts for folks, but also give them educational handouts to guide them on label reading. So I hope that answers the question. It does. Um, I guess I'm trying to think, too, about, like, if a patient came in and, and they've been exposed to a peanut or a walnut and they had no idea they were even allergic to nuts, where would you take that patient? So if they clearly tell us, like, you know, I, I had this reaction. It was within five to ten minutes of ingesting a peanut or a walnut. And believe it or not, tree nuts are things that, you know, most people don't ingest on a regular basis. Um, so it may be something at second or third ingestion and they're a little bit older and they have that reaction. So that's where that history comes in to tell us, well, it seems like you've done okay before, but boy, this really sounds like an allergic reaction because you ate it. Within 10 minutes, you felt nauseous, your tongue felt full, your chest felt tight, and you broke out in hives, and then you had an episode of vomiting. But you were better two to three hours later after some treatment. But that sounds pretty real. So we would end up, you know, if we had that patient in the, you know, the clinic that day, we would skin test them. And when I skin test, I don't just look at the one nut, because if they're, you're sensitized to one, you could be sensitized or have a positive skin test to multiple nuts. And so I always look at everything. Now that can, it can sometimes be that patients are reactive to pecan and walnut, but may do just fine with cashew and pistachio. So it can be very uh, difficult between patients, but that's where our history guides us. And then we have to make sure that we're doing our, our due diligence as much as we can to identify everything that may cause them a problem. 
Very interesting. I think it's always just so good to hear about that and kind of um, debunk some of the things that are out there, those theories. Um, one other thing, I guess, fruit allergies. You hear of a lot of patients that have reactions to strawberries or mangoes or peaches or whatever it might be. So how are those considered true allergens? So again, like everything, it varies with the patient. Um, fruit allergies, we'll look at something called oral allergy syndrome, sometimes for a lot of patients, or pollen fruit allergy syndrome, where there can be similar proteins in the pollens of some of our trees and grasses and weeds that will cause patients, if they encounter raw fruits and vegetables, to maybe have mouth itching, a sensation of tongue swelling and throat tightness, Rarely that can progress to symptoms like anaphylaxis. And interestingly, birch tree pollen can be associated with sensitization to raw peanuts, almonds, hazelnuts, peaches, pears, uh, a variety of other things. Sometimes carrots will be positive. Grasses can sometimes cause folks to have reactions with grass-related grains like wheat and oat. And then ragweed uh, can also cause symptoms with things like cantaloupes and melons. So those are things that we certainly look for. And then fruits like strawberries can be a little hard because they also have some uh, properties, more like a chemical property, I would, I would describe it, where if patients eat a large amount, they break out in hives. And we have that happen with some patients, um, interestingly, that take things like Motrin or aspirin and break out in hives. Some of those patients will do the same things with some food components. So I've seen strawberry cause not only just mouth itching and be related more to a pollen fruit allergy, uh, cross-reactivity pattern or syndrome, um, but I've also seen it cause some non-allergic symptoms for patients. So I think that again boils down to history. Um, for a lot of our patients that come in, those drive a number of our consults. They'll come and tell us, you know, it's raw apples and, you know, melons that, that make my mouth itch. And I'm like, wow, you do you have seasonal allergy symptoms? And a lot of times we'll say, well, yeah, and we can kind of predict that spring and fall are going to be bad for them. And as long as everything pans out, sometimes allergy shots are an answer to help not only their nose allergies, but sometimes makes those food symptoms go away as well. So... Um, that can be very interesting when they come in and talk with us about that. I think it's um, really good to just educate yourself on that. And so whenever you're talking about this oral allergy syndrome, um, would this classify as like a true allergic reaction, like you're having full-blown anaphylaxis? I think that's a you know great uh, question to ask. So for a lot of our patients, it's not a full body reaction. It's kind of I tell our patients it's kind of like having a skin test in your mouth. You're really really allergic to birch tree, and then let's say it's a raw apple that causes them problems. That birch tree pollen and the apple share similar proteins. So in that raw apple, they're basically kind of getting a skin test inside their mouth and that's what's causing <laughs> symptoms. So it is allergic. It's driven by the same allergy antibody that drives your allergy to the birch tree pollen. Um, and IgE or the allergy antibody is what drives allergic reactions to other foods. The good thing is, is it's just a little more localized. In some patients that can progress to full anaphylaxis, so we have to warn them about that. Um, but yeah, it is an allergic reaction. 
interestingly, a lot of those patients, you know, if they don't want to do anything more and they just came in wanting an answer about why does my mouth itch, if you ask them really closely, they'll tell you, well, I do fine with apple pie or applesauce or cooked or peeled versions of those foods. So that's another treatment option for them uh, is to say, well, you can cook or peel those, you know, fruits and vegetables. If it's something like bananas that makes their mouth itch, it's a little harder to cook those. But, you know, um, those are things that we talk with them about. Maybe just stay away from bananas. Yeah. So are these patients having symptoms with fruit during the pollen season, like you said, spring and fall? Most will tell a significant increase during the spring and fall, but others will have, I mean, most will also have symptoms anytime they eat it. And most come to us because they've just avoided and they're just wondering what in the world can we do about this? And then you can imagine if you want to try and eat healthier, but everything you eat that's a raw vegetable makes your mouth itch that gets to be a little bit hard. So um, most patients definitely can tell that, yeah, it is a little bit more during my bad seasons, but it's kind of there all year round. I know we've got a holiday coming up, Valentine's Day. And uh, back in October, we've heard from some physicians about staying away from different things around Halloween time. I guess it's the same way whenever Valentine's Day and some of these other holidays are coming up. Maybe... Maybe chocolate-covered strawberries isn't the best for some patients. Certainly, if you're dairy allergic, staying away from chocolate is a big thing. And if you've had any sort of uh, sensitivity or adverse reactions to chocolate, we wouldn't advise that you do that. And strawberry, I think, is certainly something for allergic patients. If they have mouth itching, um, that would not be a pleasant experience on Valentine's Day. But if you have that, you know, definitely we can probably give them some reasons for that. Other than that, I don't know that I ever do a lot of specific counseling around around Valentine's Day but you know definitely we get kind of the seasonal food allergy questions the you know um, during the the Halloween seasons and the you know staying away how do we have our children or myself be safe during Halloween treats Um, the other thing in the fall that I always find is uh, cinnamon allergies tend to come back hazelnut um, also becomes a a little more prominent and then you know as we get into the spring the the fresh fruits and the vegetables and with the strawberry festivals we tend to see some people um, every now and then too I can remember a particular strawberry festival in Virginia that would usually bring us a few hive patients after days of a you know a long day of ingesting fresh strawberries so those are things that we can talk to folks about if they have questions in particular well, I'm just sitting here thinking about in, you know, different classrooms at elementary school, they do the Valentine's parties and some bring the little heart-shaped candies and some of those candies have nuts in them. So how do you, I guess, make sure that a kid stays away from that if they're peanut allergic or any kind of tree nut allergic? So uh, that's also a wonderful question and always a struggle, especially as we try to help parents take their preschool child into the school setting. Um, We give folks action plans and those go to the teachers and the schools so that those children can be identified. Parents, if they so elect, can have their children wear medic alert bracelets. And 
certainly there's some that um, are a little more fun. They can be plastic bands with nuts on them or allergens that kids can wear. And in the younger kids, those are fun and are not things that are necessarily going to separate them so much. Some schools have separate tables. Um, I think in the older children, it really becomes about education. Some of those kids can remember incidental ingestions. And so what we talk with them specifically about is like, look, you can actually be you know, in and around those allergens, but you can't touch them and you can't ingest them. So we really focus on limiting contact and limiting ingestions. So a lot of it becomes really based on the age of the child. So the precautions for nonverbal toddlers who don't know and don't understand barriers, separation is a big thing. Um, as they get older, education, putting some barriers and separation in place, you know, definitely a help. But in the older children, really teaching them about risk and how to prevent things and how to protect themselves. And most of my food allergic kids who are getting older, let's say fourth, fifth, sixth grade, even as early as second and third grade, will really be very, very aware of what their allergens are. And they won't be willing to accept anything from anybody without knowing if we've done, if we've helped do our job. Absolutely. I think education is key. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Potter. I know we could go on all day talking about food allergy, but we will definitely have you back on the show and answer some questions. I know a lot of patients have different questions for providers, so we'll get you back on and we're excited. Um, Again, thank you so much. And we're all can we find you? What offices do you see patients? So I am in Johnson City, Tennessee, Greenville, Tennessee, and Kingsport are my three office locations. Great. And you can schedule an appointment with Dr. Potter on our website, allergyasc.com, or call our number. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Let's Clear the Air. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Let's Clear the Air. Please consider following this podcast and remember... If you want helpful and accurate information about allergies and asthma, our allergy experts are here to clear the air.